As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Coming up then, the problems facing Liverpool in the biggest crisis of Jurgen Klopp's time as manager. What's gone wrong and what can be done to turn things around? I'm Mark Chapman. This is The Athletic Football Podcast. So we're joined on this one by German football writer Rafa Honigstein, who's written extensively on Jurgen Klopp during his time managing in the Premier League and the Bundesliga. And also James Pearce, who was there to witness Liverpool's latest defeat, that 3-0 loss at Wolves on Saturday. I reckon, James, this may be the 10th podcast of this season where I may have had the line, the biggest crisis of Jurgen Klopp's time as manager. So is it? Or, or is that sensationalist? No, it's definitely not sensationalist. No, just when you think it's kind of reached its lowest ebb, which I think most Liverpool fans leaving the, the Amex Stadium at Brighton three weeks ago thought, but it can't possibly get any worse than that. But it did at Molyneux on Saturday because, you know, Brighton are an upwardly mobile club pushing for European qualification. Wolves are in a relegation scrap. The opening 15 minutes was as bad as I've seen from... Any Liverpool team probably going back to Roy Hodgson's short-lived reign. It was, you know, they went, they were 2-0 down. They could have easily been 3 or 4 down after 15, 20 minutes. It was utterly embarrassing. And they did, they did fight their way back into it. You know, they actually completely lost in the aftermath, of course. But they actually dominated the opening 20, 25 minutes of the second half and squandered some great chances. But, you know, the first time Wolves broke away, that they cut through and scored. And that that just epitomises Liverpool at the moment, you know, so blunt at one end and so fragile at the other. So over the course of all these podcasts this season, I, I reckon when we've looked at what's going wrong, I think we've had injuries. I think we've had the midfield. 
I think we've had the age of the squad with them having a lot of young players and a lot of getting towards the end of their career, but nothing really in the middle. I think we've had the owners. I think we've had the recruitment department. I think we've had Jurgen Klopp's seven-year itch. Is that it? Have I missed anything out? <laughs> Is it still a complete mix of all of those? Yeah, yeah, a complete mix of all of those. I mean, that's, you know, the other the other one that's obviously been regularly spoken about is you know the, the aftermath of last season and physical and mental i guess of the 63 games and then the heartache and missing out on the premier league and the champions league by such narrow margins but you know, t- to be honest even klopp said himself after after the game at molyneux he said you know how off, how how long can we keep banging on about last season he said you know it's february you know we had a a decent break for the world cup um you know a lot of his players you know had a had a had a holiday and then a mini preseason, so so yeah, I think it's lots and lots of little factors that have come together, and and I think as well, just a team and a group that's been used to winning for so long has now suffered such a punishing run of setbacks that it's just completely sapped morale and belief. And like you know, the body, you know, Klopp said it himself the week before at, at Brighton, he didn't like the body language of some players, and it wasn't any better at Molyneux. On the, on the weekend when things went against them. You know, there are a lot of people in that dressing room feeling sorry for themselves. And, and yeah, they're missing some key personnel. You know, Van Dijk and Canate is the first choice centre-back combination, both out injured at the minute. But, you know, Matip and Gomez, you know, we're still talking about two, you know, two elite defenders. Yet, you know, they were so culpable at Molyneux on the weekend. There's no excuse for that. Not No excuse for not being focused, not being ready to, you know, being completely looked unprepared to, to play on the front foot. And that hesitancy and kind of just softness just, just really hurt Liverpool on the day. When you look at Jurgen Klopp at the moment, Raf, what do you see? And do you see things that you have seen in the past? Well, you do see that uh, thin-skinnedness that you've seen at the tail end of his Dortmund time when he lashed out quite regularly uh, against journalists and became quite unpleasant. And I think that's a mixture of things. First of all, he is a bad loser, most coaches are. He doesn't like to get uh, questioned. Um, Again, I think that's probably not unique to him. But I've often found, and I think even people in Dortmund in hindsight realise this on retrospect, that what he hates most about criticism is when he gets the feeling that people try to question the whole thing. So what I mean by that is when people say your team doesn't work anymore, your system doesn't work anymore, this team is finished, something's really fundamentally wrong. I think the reason he cannot tolerate that is because he wants to avoid at all cost that kind of thinking, that kind of doubt creeping into the team itself. Because I think with him and his very defined playing style and a mantra of togetherness and we have to do things a certain way, the moment that belief in that general direction and in that project on the whole wanes, the football that he plays doesn't work anymore. You can take away maybe 10% from Man City and they still will be absolutely brilliant because they play in a certain way. I think with Liverpool, with the running, the effort, the the intensity, if players believe maybe we should do things a bit differently, maybe we should just play a bit more football or, you know, defend deeper or do this or that, 
I think he's worried that the whole thing will come crumbling down. And that's why he reacts always so strongly against some suggestion that there is something sort of fundamentally wrong. Uh, he doesn't want the players to start believing that. Uh, because then it's really over. That's really interesting because that, it, I mean, that kind of rings true with everything we saw at the weekend, doesn't it, James? And for you, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jurgen Klopp clearly, obviously, didn't didn't appreciate. I, I asked him about the slow starts. You know, it has been a problem that's dogged Liverpool all season, being unable to to get going and and playing catch up. Which obviously, when you're you're short of confidence, you know, just saps morale even further. And um, yeah, he didn't. He didn't want to answer my question, and I since been 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 told that it wasn't actually a reaction to anything I'd written. It was something that he'd he'd read elsewhere. I understood in terms of emotions, obviously running very high straight after a game when he when he's having to face the media. And I think I think for him at the minute, problems just keep on stacking up. Probably where he's hurting is for a man that you know seems to have the Midas touch for so much of his Liverpool reign, where everything everything he's done has worked. You know, you even think back to last season where. You know, he'd make loads of changes for domestic cup games and they'd still find a way and people like Origi and Minamino would step up and deliver. And there was just almost this feeling for most of last season that he could make four, five, six changes and it wouldn't make any difference because they had this amazing momentum behind them. And obviously that has completely been lost. And it just feels at the moment like he doesn't really know where to turn. I mean, I think the only the only glimmer of hope at the minute, is the fact that, you know, Jota and Van Dijk are back in training this week. That provides a, li a little bit of a lift. Then you've got Firmino, Canate and Diaz to come. I think, obviously, a lot of fans were hoping the January window would give them, would, would provide the chance to deliver some surgery to the squad. But, you know, I think they made a big mistake not starting the midfield rebuild during the winter window. And, and obviously, Gagpo, so far, the only January signing is has struggled to get going and I've got some sympathy for him because I think it's it's not a particularly easy environment to flourish in at the minute. Let's deal with recruitment and players, but but linked to Klopp as, as an individual, Raf. Look, we know he's emotional and actually he he has so many positive emotions that we have seen over the course of many years, both at Borussia Dortmund and uh, at Liverpool. He is close to players. He does hug players on and off the field there is obviously a, a relationship there is he ruthless and I, I'll tell you why I asked that question once you've given me the answer I think he's quite honest I don't know if ruthless is the right word but I think the moment he believes a player doesn't perform anymore I think he's got no big problems getting rid of them he might err on the court on the side of positivity and will give players lots of chances but history is littered with players who, for whatever reason, didn't fit the club mould and were gone within a few months. You know, I always think about Christian Benteke and you know, the kind of team he inherited at, at Liverpool. Of course, he tried to make the most of that and, and said, you know, they're not as bad as, as people might think. But uh, within a couple of years, they were basically, well, a lot of them were gone. So I think he does believe in these players. But to take maybe a more practical example, if this, for me, absolutely inexplicable collapse in form from Fabinho, which I think explains a lot what happened to this team, if that continues and if he doesn't once more become the player that he used to be, I think Klopp will say, look, um, I love this guy. He did great things for us, but we cannot possibly play with this player in this important position because he is a shadow of him for himself. And 
he might not immediately sort of you know drive him out of the door, but he'll say, you know, we'll have to we'll have to buy someone else there. So I don't think that is a problem. I don't think he has got a blind spot about his players' limitations and problems. Which was what my follow-up was going to be, James, really, on that. Because you look at the players that have gone out of Liverpool over the last couple of years, Sadio Mane being being the main senior player, you could look at a couple of those who were in and around the first team from time to time in a seniority uh, role, Shakiri or Minamino. But then aside from that, really, I mean, I've, I've got sort of players out here from, from July all the way to, to January this year. Uh, ben Woodburn, Divic Origi, Nico Williams, Shea Ojo, Ben Davis. They're on the periphery. The established first teamers haven't necessarily been moved on. And if you compare that to Manchester City, who do refresh quite a lot, even if you go back to Ferguson, and it's always very easy to throw that comparison, players were moved on maybe when they were at their peak actually, before they hit the dip. And I just wonder whether there is a real loyalty from Klopp to a lot of this first-team squad. I think that is a fair point. And I think he has been too loyal to some. I think, And I think there has been a, a degree of complacency as well throughout the club that it was because, you know, we nearly won everything. So, like, you know, what, what, what needs to change? You know, there's, I think they have massively underestimated the need to refresh he, there was actually a top quote, I think, back at the back end of pre-season where he did say, you know, he was talking about the midfield and because, it, you know, it's not benefit of hindsight. Everyone was, there was a clamour for Liverpool to sign a midfielder last summer and not so much because the midfield hadn't functioned properly last season, but people looked at it and went, well, that that first choice trio of Fabino, Henderson and Thiago, you know, they're, you know, what's Thiago, 31, Henderson 32, Fabino 29. And yeah, nobody could have foreseen the drop off in Fabino this season, as as Rafa said. You know that I think that's almost I can't. Eat, it's unprecedented for me how someone can go from where he was to where he's at now. Where he, you know, he's he's not getting picked. You know, an eighteen year old rookie and Stefan Bassetic is getting picked ahead of him. But you know what 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 I think was predictable was that the caliber of the backup options weren't good enough. They either weren't good enough or weren't durable enough and couldn't be relied upon. And then. You had a situation where, you know, Naby Keita missed most of the first half of the season. Oxay chamberlain missed most of the first half of the season. And, and Klopp actually said himself at the back end of the summer, you know, we're not the kind of club that if someone, you know, isn't pushing for a move and they've got a couple of years left on their contract, we don't say, right, well, there's the door. Thanks very much. And to me, that's a strength, not a weakness. Of clubs that do that. And, and yeah, so that has definitely played a part in it. I mean, you, when you think that since Naby Keita arrived in the summer of 2018, the only senior midfielder to be signed since then is Thiago. That tells you, really, that that area of the side, which, you know, ironically, actually wasn't the Achilles heel at Molyneux on the weekend. It was it was bigger bigger issues in front of the midfield and behind the midfield. But, yeah, that, that's been a massive issue this season. And, yeah, the rec- the recruitment side of things is a big part of that. James's point about the midfield is, is absolutely spot on. I think it's been a, a gaping hole in the squad for a long time. And that's where perhaps this policy of only buying the right player, which has worked for them for many years, has, has backfired a little bit. Maybe even the second, third, fourth, fifth choice would have been better than just waiting for the next right player to come along next summer. But... I'm just shaking my head a little bit because 
I remember having conversations with Pete Kravitz, uh, Klopp's number number three, um, for many years, and he's always said that this idea that a new player coming in improves the squad is very simplistic because they feel a new player will change the dynamic. It will upset the existing structure, both in terms of the personnel, how they relate to each other, but also, of course, tactically. And they've always been very, very careful. And for many years, especially during that really good run, James will remember this, the summers were very, very unhappy and very noisy because because fans would say, where are the new players? We need new players. And for years, Liverpool would add maybe one, maybe nothing, and people would just tear their hair out. So I think the continuity and the idea that, you know, we have a team that is functioning, and I don't want to upset that too much by buying two or three more players. It does look wrong from where we are standing now, but I think it worked well enough for a long enough time to understand why they they haven't changed tack all of a sudden. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When the heat is aimed at the recruitment department, James, what are your thoughts on that? And and the subsequent point, actually, that there's a lack of investment in the squad because fans of other clubs will go, well, hang on a minute, you, you've bought Diaz and Jota and Gakpo and Nunez. It's a complicated issue because it, it polarises opinion. There is a lot of anger amongst the fan base, certainly online at the moment, directed at the owners and uh, a lack of investment. And I, and I get that when you see some of the some of the spending elsewhere. But you always have to put it in context. Like Liverpool have spent or committed in terms of you include add-ons close to two hundred million pounds on players since since the back end of last January when Luis Diaz came in. I think the net spend in that period is about 120 million pounds. So not, you know, of course, you know, n- n- not not huge compared to Chelsea's lavish spree, but also not ins- inconsequential. But where there's been a a, a, a mistake is the focus has been very much on refreshing and almost future proof in the front line. When you look, you know, the signing of Diaz, you look at Nunes, Carvalho, and then Gagpo in January. And, and, and yeah, that was a, that was a real kind of hot potato that was passed from Michael Edwards to Julian Ward when he took over as sporting director, because, you know, you had a situation where for so long Liverpool operated with, you know, Salamane, Firmino, everyone knew that's the front three. And they were all, you know, getting old at the same time in terms of reaching that reaching the thirties, all had contracts that ran out in the summer of twenty twenty three. So something had to be done about that. And I think you know, time will tell whether Nunes proves to be worth the money. You'd say Diaz has already been a a massive hit. Gagpo clearly needs some time to settle in. But I think you know what where they have done is they've neglected that that midfield area. Carragher made the point, I think, on Sky on, on Sunday that if you have a very, if, if your recruitment is being praised and the man that is leading your recruitment is doing very well, why allow him to leave? With, I mean, with reference to to Michael Edwards, it's difficult because Michael Edwards, obviously, you know, he he he, he remained firmly in the background throughout his time at Liverpool, and it, and he he was adamant that he just needed a break 
from football after the the pressures and rigors of, of being at the top for for a long time. Um, you do wonder whether he did see the end of a cycle and the you know how difficult it was going to be to to try and build a second great team because I think that's the other thing when you look at Liverpool's recruitment and so many successes. And you look at, you know, Jeannie Wijnaldum from relegated Newcastle and Andy Robertson from relegated Hull and, and you know, the, the free transfers that they've picked up and, you know, bringing Trent through from the academy. You almost think, it, it, to me, that's not really sustainable. You know, it, 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 it makes what Klopp has achieved even greater in terms of winning all those prizes whilst having to balance the books with FSG's self-sustaining business model. But it keeps getting harder. It keeps getting harder when you're competing against clubs Backed by the riches of of of, of you know of, of you know nation nation states, wealth behind them, um, you know, and you look at what Chelsea are doing now, it just makes that challenge all the more greater. And then there is, I think, you can't get away from the fact that there is a hell of a lot of uncertainty and instability and turbulence at a club where people have held it up as this you know shining light for stability for so long because. You know, you're right, Michael Edwards left. Julian Ward, within a year of being in the post, as, as he's quitting at the end of the season. Ian Graham, you know, the highly acclaimed director of research, who, you know, has quite rightly been praised for, you know, he, a lot of the data-led approach that, that led to all these hits in the recruitment. He's leaving. Why are they going? And do they know who's going to replace Julian Ward? No, no. So that, that process is ongoing. You know, he, the, it, was, it was made clear... When, when he made his decision um, before Christmas, Julian Ward, that, that he would stay in his post until the end of the season. And he, you know, he did the deal for Gagpo over, over Christmas. He's working on deals for the, for the summer window as well. So it's Klopp, Klopp and the CEO, Billy Hogan, are leading that process to find a replacement for him. Um, and then, of course, you know, you've got Mike Gordon, who is, has been a, you know, a, the kind of the central figure from the ownership group in terms of the day-to-day running of the club, he's taken a step back to focus on this search for new investment. That all adds to the kind of general, kind of yeah, to the turbulence that's that's kind of it's off the pitch and it's also on it for Liverpool at the minute. And and therefore Klopp is going to be frustrated, Raph, at what's going on above him, let alone the stuff that he's in charge of as regards to the team. It just feels a very very unsettled at the moment. I think a club being on sale. All the changes behind the scenes, as James has mentioned, uh, a collapse in form, a collapse in results, and no easy answers. I mean, Klopp's always said, we know the solutions. The problem is not the problem. The problem is putting the solutions into place. But uh, all the things that I thought will will work in their favour so far haven't really, haven't really made a difference. I thought that the World Cup break would really help this team to refresh them uh, you know important players didn't go to the world cup like robertson like salah it hasn't really um, helped them at all um after half decent start that lack of intensity that lack of freshness still seems to be uh, very much in evidence there is no plan b I, I just don't see Klopp reinventing himself and suddenly playing five at the back and playing counter-attacking football i mean maybe it gets to the stage this season where you just need a result so badly you will actually deviate from your principles but i just i don't see it happening do you think chelsea frustrate him raf i mean he's been asked about it hasn't he and his quote was i don't understand how it's possible for for their spending in this transfer window but it's obviously not for me to explain how it works given the uncertainty at the top of his club but also balancing that out with what you said about 
how bringing one player in can destabilise your squad, let alone the 112 or whatever they've done at Stamford Bridge. I can't work out whether what Chelsea are doing frustrates him or not. I think he's bemused. I don't think he would want to swap places with Graham Potter at the moment um, and having all these players come in. But even the manager himself says, "Mm, not sure if there's not too many players. I mean, that is not something I've ever heard before in, in professional football. But... I think the frustration goes deeper than Chelsea. It's it's a sense that even at Liverpool, which is probably the second biggest club in England, but in terms of history and fan base, etc., has to contend with teams and clubs that have, in theory, unlimited budgets. Of course, they are not. But I think from his perspective, sometimes it can look like that, that they can do whatever they want. And he's talked about Newcastle before and he's talked about Man City before. And now Chelsea seem to be almost in the same vein. And that he has owners who are businessmen who say, look, we can spend X amount. And if you um, cannot spend it on the player that you want this year, it doesn't mean that we're going to give you double next year. You know, this is this is our budget. We are uh, rebuilding another side of the, another terrace uh, in the stadium, uh, having already done one. And uh, you have to live within his, his means. And I think he gets it. Coming from Germany, he totally gets it. And but he finds it hard to work in an environment where those rules, if you will, don't really apply uh, universally. Um, it's not an even playing field, and he finds it very frustrating. Hello there, I'm Danny Kelly, host of The View from the Lane, the Athletics dedicated Tottenham Hotspur podcast. If you'd like to read of that proper Spursy win, uh, join myself, Jack Pitt, Brooke, James Moore and Tim Spears, where we'll pay due tribute to Harry Kane, the club's new record goalscorer and the scourge of Pep Guardiola yet again. Just search for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your pods and you'll be able to find that episode on Monday afternoon. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The other thing he's having to cope with, everybody at the club are probably having to cope with, James, is the 
possible sale of the club. Matt Slater's written in The Athletic today, if we were to compare FSG's attempts to sell Liverpool to the sale of a house, it might be time to try a different estate agent because three months in and there are no firm bids and not much buzz. <laughs> yeah, that's um, certainly a fair summation based on based on what I've been told as well that when David Ornstein broke the story in early November that FSG had put Liverpool up for sale you know it, I, I was told then that it was they thought it would be the start of a long process rather than it wasn't one of those ones where you know a story is broken when a deal is on the brink of, of being done I think it was a, a bit of a fishing exercise in terms of on the back of what had happened with Chelsea Um you know, I think I think that had piqued their interest in terms of oh well that's I wonder what we could get for for Liverpool then bearing in mind that you know what is it three hundred million pound investment in twenty ten now you're looking at three to four billion pounds valuation but yeah I think Man United being put up for sale so soon after as as complicated things because of course you know you you there's only a very small pool of funds and individuals that could possibly afford deals on that scale. Um, and yeah, when I you know I spoke to senior people at FSG recently, who said that they were they they were edging closer to deciding to sell a minority stake in the club rather than going after a full takeover. So I think for Klopp's hopes of of getting of pulling things around and and relaunching this Liverpool reign of his, you know it, that ownership situation has to be sorted out before the summer. Because if it's not, I, I don't know who's picking up the bill for what needs to be done in terms of this squad rebuild. Because you you only have to look at the way FSG have run the club for the last 12 years. And they've done a, a hell of a lot of good for the club in that period, you know, not least in terms of the stadium and the training ground. And, and, and of course, you know, they're indebted to Klopp for the trophies he's delivered. But... You know they don't put in their own money. You know, they so inevitably, if you miss out on the Champions League, which was what worth a hundred million to Liverpool last season, that impacts what you can spend. So that is why they need to bring in this new investment because they they know themselves that you know if Liverpool are going to compete for the biggest prizes again, then there has to be you know you, you, I think you are looking at probably two hundred billion plus this summer that needs to be spent on that squad. And of course, there's not a Coutinho type situation where you could point at a player that could potentially be sold for an eye-watering summer money and then that 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 cash reinvested wisely. Which brings us to the final point because we've done nearly half an hour of a Liverpool pod and not mentioned Jude Bellingham and that <laughs> uh, breaks all uh, broadcasting and podcast laws. Was um, it the 200 million that got you thinking well, about yeah, Jude no, Bellingham? Well, no, interestingly, Raf, uh, remarkably, in, in one of, this has actually turned out to be quite well structured <laughs> in that all of the themes, all of the themes that we have mentioned then tie in to Jude Bellingham, whether that be the recruitment department, whether that be investment, whether that be the midfield problems, whether that be a frustrated clop in the atmosphere around the place, it all, getting into the Champions League for next season, it, it, it all ties in to whether they can get Jude Bellingham or not, doesn't it? And that's why these next few months are, are, are so important, you would think, in their, with their recruitment plan. I don't think qualifying for the Champions League or not is going to make much difference to their pursuit of Jude Bellingham. Of course, you'd want to promise, offer, you know, whatever, uh, paint as best a picture you can about your club and where the club is going. And it's easier from the Champions League than from 10th position in the table or ninth. But 
I think if Jude Bellingham goes to Liverpool, he's not going for one season. He's going to go there to think, I can become a very important player at a very important club and help this club uh, fulfil its potential and fulfil my own potential in the process. I think the bigger problem, knowing a little bit how the Bellinghams work and how fastidious they are in, in choosing the right path, is is the longer-term possible instability. Who is the owner? Who's the manager? You know, is Liverpool really the kind of Liverpool we've seen in the last few years or or have they reached the pinnacle, not the pinnacle of problems, as Klopp put it the other day, but maybe the pinnacle of their potential. And from then on, it's actually a downward trajectory. I think these are decisions that need to be made. And I think they're a lot more, if you will, strategic and long term or at least midterm than whether they qualify for the Champions League or not. Um, They might just be in a position to to finish the subject whereby because they have missed out and because the need to replenish has become more obvious than it was last year they might just say you know what Jude Bellingham will make such a huge difference in terms of the quality he brings in terms of the personality in terms also the perception from the outside and and the fans getting excited that it will be worth the money and maybe we weren't 100% sure that we can spend it or should spend it, but now we will because now we're a little bit in the corner, backed in the corner. So it might actually, in a strange way, help them um, to push themselves where they need to be for him to find an agreement. That will sound very positive to Liverpool fans. Do you share that positivity, James? (laughs) I certainly agree that I I don't think Qualifying for the Champions League is the be-all and end-all in terms of the, the Bellingham pursuit. Um, certainly not from, I think, from a pulling power perspective and and a Klopp. You know, I think Klopp's, the, the appeal of working with Klopp as well. Um, and I think, as Rafa said, when you look at the decisions that the Bellinghams have made previously, you know, it, it doesn't make you suggest that they're going to go somewhere where they think, you know, he'll earn the biggest wage and he'll be guaranteed the biggest prizes straight away. It's about development. But yeah, my concern at the minute is where does this crisis at Liverpool end? And, it, and, it, and you know, I don't think, I don't think you can take anything for granted in terms of, you know, Liverpool has to still be a really attractive proposition for Bellingham. And it would be understandable at the minute if he was looking at it and thinking, well, do you know what? I'm not, I'm not actually too sure because what on earth's going on there? And I think that's why, you know these next few months are so so important, not just in terms of Bellingham, but it's part of it because you, you need to show that there are you know some shoots of recovery, that it's not gone completely off the rails. Because because I think that's the other thing. Any Liverpool fan will tell you, of course, it absolutely loved Jude Bellingham at Liverpool, and you know he, he is what they need. But but they need a lot more than that. You know, there's some serious surgery that needs to be done this summer. You know, Klopp has said he's fully committed to to doing that rebuild. And I think he's earned the right to oversee that rebuild, regardless, I think, of what happens in the next few months. But it's a worry. And for me, the, the financial side, who, who you know, if you're looking at 120, 130 million pounds for Bellingham, again, it comes back to who, where's that money coming from? You know, I, I, I think a lot does hinge on, on bringing in new investment or the current owners changing their business model. And there's there's no sign of that. Thank you, James. Thank you, Raf. Uh, you can read Matt's latest column in full on The Athletic now on how to sell a house. If you're not already a subscriber, take advantage. Uh, the offer at the moment, £1.99 a month for the first 12 months. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. 
The Athletic.